0: Welcome to episode number 8 of the Practical EdTech podcast. This podcast features a great conversation with my friend Dr. Beth Holland in which we talked about her work at Cosin around issues of digital equity and what digital equity means. And in the second half of the conversation, we talked all about stand up paddleboarding and her stand up paddleboard racing career. It was a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we did recording it. All right, my guest today is Dr. Beth Holland, who is a stand-up paddleboarder extraordinaire and COSIN's Director of Digital Equity. Is that correct?
1: Sure. Close enough. Um, they like to reverse things around. So I'm the digital equity project director for whatever difference that makes.
0: Okay. Well, now, now we've got it right. Even though you said it to me 10 seconds ago, I still butchered it. But That's
1: okay. Uh, I butchered it too for a while.
0: What does that title actually mean?
1: So what it actually means is I oversee the entire project that focuses on digital equity. So I just started back in January and I work with an advisory committee. And one of the things I do is prepare, you know, resources and materials to support school leaders when they're thinking about digital equity. So I have a monthly blog series where I feature a different district every month and the efforts that they're doing to try and improve digital equity within their districts. And then my big project of the year is that I'm working with my advisory committee to update the COSIN digital equity toolkit. And so right now on the website, if you were to go to cosin.org slash digital equity, there's a great um, resource that was developed by Susan Bearden, uh, who's now our chief innovation officer that provides all kinds of resources and frameworks and things for districts that are thinking about you know, how do we increase our students' access to devices and access to high-speed internet? And how do we think about um, the literacy skills that they need to have that equitable access to learning? And so my big project of the year is to update that. Um, So that's what I do.
0: And and for people who are listening, when we talk about digital equity, we're talking about access to materials, access to the web, access to the hardware, all of those things, correct?
1: All of those things, and in fact, one of my challenges for this year is working on sort of expanding the framework. So right now, the way we think about it, um, and I'm not using like a royal we, but like we at COSA and we, um, we talk about access to devices, we talk about access to high-speed internet, and that's at school and at home. Um, one of the big issues is that even though About 92% of schools have reported that they can meet like minimum bandwidth requirements as established by the FCC. You know, most schools can't ensure that their students have access once they go home. And so there's that home to school learning opportunity gap that we're trying to address. And then the last piece of it, at the moment is really defined as digital literacy, meaning, you know, are our students developing the capacity to take advantage of these devices and to take advantage of the Internet so that they can be, you know, knowledge creators and they can um, have greater access to learning opportunities. Um, one of the things that I've been hearing the more I talk to different districts is there's really some more nuanced conversation that needs to happen. So, for example, we're talking about um, digital equity through a lens of universal design for learning. So. Do students are students able to access the materials from an accessibility standpoint, you know, do they have different options for action and expression Um, from a motivational perspective, you know, how is that being tapped into and then tied in with all of that is also culturally responsive practices. So you know, from a representation standpoint, are all voices being represented? Are all voices having equitable opportunity to demonstrate their learning? Um, so, trying to make this a little bit more nuanced uh, than it's been in the past, I think we've done a great job of bringing the point of yes, we need devices; yes, we need internet. And now, there's some next steps um, that we're starting to work on.
0: Right. Right. I think that the debate about whether or not we need Access and devices is pretty much over at this point. Right. I, don't, I don't hear too many school boards saying no, we don't. Well, actually, that's not true. I do still hear some school boards yeah. saying no, we don't. Need to, <laughs> we don't need to spend money on that. But uh I think culturally, it's accepted that no, that's what we need to spend money on. I, and now we're at the point of where do how do we do that efficiently, and how do we do yeah. it in a way that, as you say, makes it equitable for everybody. And yeah. I have to say, you inspired a blog post for me. You okay. did. Yeah. I, uh, gosh probably like in July, late June. I don't know. Well, I write a lot of blog posts, so it's hard to remember <laughs> when exactly. I, you, I know that feeling. You emailed me asking about, uh, alt text in Oh Google yeah. Blogs. Yeah. Uh, because that, you know, that, that's one of those things that mm-hmm. we previously didn't really think about, or at least, you know, I didn't see a lot of people asking about it or, or talking about that sort of, uh, question even a few years ago. And now I, and now we do see that more often, uh, for folks who aren't familiar with alt text, it's, um, the description of an image that is made available for people using a screen reader.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that probably
0: the best way to describe it? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So that the, you know, if you have a visually impaired person, um, and they're using a, you know, a screen reader, it will act, you know, instead of just saying, you know, image on screen, it might say, you know, image of. A Tree with a red bird at the top of it,
0: right? All right, and it's it's important for You know the folks with screen readers, but as a side benefit It's also useful for search engine optimization as it turns out mm-hmm. if you're trying to get uh, Get a blog post or get any internet article to rank more highly. That's one of the things that Google actually looks at now Yeah,
1: so I I have a blog post coming out shortly on the Kosin blog about my adventures in accessibility because it is not as easy as it seems. Um, I was at the CAST Universal Design for Learning Conference um, in early August, and this was why I emailed you because I was preparing for it, and I attended a presenter webinar. And as much as I've been you know, talking about UDL and learning about it for years, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, of course my session will be accessible. And by the end of the webinar, I was... I was honestly embarrassed of myself because I realized how not accessible my materials had been. And so then I was on a quest for, I'm going to get this right. And despite hours and hours of work and a a long story made short so that you'll actually read the blog post. um, Mm. Despite all of my efforts, I had a participant who was using a screen reader and a braille keyboard on an iPad and still couldn't access my materials because of what I ended up doing. And it was not as easy as it sounds. And I also did learn a screen reader will only, doesn't automatically read the text in a text box. So if you put a text box that's not part of the master slide template in a Google slide on a slide, the screen reader just reads it as text box. So you have to make sure there's an alt tag on the text box which PowerPoint does, and I'm not sure if Google Slides does because Google Slides and I were having words that day, and I want PowerPoint.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know if it does either because I I didn't realize that until just now that uh, yeah. it just says it's a text box. I didn't, yeah, it just
1: but. says text box. So what you have to do, and this at least I figured out how to do this in PowerPoint is in the alt tag spot. You actually type. I was typing like text box colon, and then. The text that was in the box.
0: Wow. All yeah.
1: Right.
0: Oh, I learned something new and hopefully people listening to this have learned something new from that as well. That's, I did not realize that. Yeah, I, is, is it just my narrow minded view of the world that these questions around accessibility have only come to the forefront in the last few years or is it, or is that actually true?
1: <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think, so it was actually kind of fun at the, at this conference, I had a chance to say hello to Dr. David Rose, who was the found one of the founders of CAST. And I had taken Dr. Rose's um, neuropsychology class in 2001. And I introduced myself and he pretended like he knew who I was. And maybe he's a gracious person. I can't imagine he knew who I was since it was 2001 in a big class, but he's been talking about this since then. And so, even back to the early days of the World Wide web consortium and how they were talking about the, like the very beginnings of XML. Um, the idea of accessibility has always been there. I think it's just a matter of, you know, there's now been enough advocacy and a, enough digitization to really bring it to the forefront. Um, but, you know, I know that that Dr. Rose and others have been advocating for it since early 2000s.
0: Okay. Yeah. So cause it just, it seems like, you know, as you know, I get about a bajillion emails a week mm-hmm. uh, with all kinds of questions and that's a question I never got until a few years ago and you know I started to get questions around you know mm-hmm. around those questions of accessibility but on the on the digital equity you know in your work now, do you have uh, you know ten thousand foot view or thirty thousand foot view of guidelines that you uh give to, give to schools, give to uh, school districts on, you know, beyond, you know, what does the FCC uh, standard, uh, you know, be, beyond that, what are the, what are the guidelines or, you know, big, big tips, I guess, if you will.
1: So it's funny you mentioned that the first one that came to mind, I've actually spent the last several months listening. So I've listened to school school leaders and district leaders across the country. And I think that's actually the most important piece is making sure that the technology leaders are really listening in their culture and context because there isn't one silver bullet. And, and that's also what has inspired this blog series that I'm doing is trying to bring so many different stories from different districts with different contexts and different cultures and different sizes and, and, you know, geography matters and culture matters and uh, student population matters in terms of how you really think through this. Um, so there's a definite listening. The other piece that I'm finding that's really important is making sure that you're building really good relationships so that you can ask the right questions. For example, um, Matt Highfield out in Beaverton, Oregon told me about how they went one-to-one, and all of a sudden, they started realizing that the kids were taking their devices home, and yet less work was coming in. And when the teachers had said to the students, "You know, do you have internet at home? They all said yes, but most of them meant that like they had access to a phone, but they couldn't actually get their school device online. So then it became a question of how many of you can actually get your school-issued device online? And they found out that a huge percentage of students didn't have internet at home. And so that started a whole different plan where you know they built out community Wi-Fi maps and they did a lot of community partnership building where different businesses in town put like a Wi-Fi symbol on their windows and the students know they can go in and do homework and have free Wi-Fi. They did a Sprint 1 million grant so that um, high school students had hotspots. But it was one of those things where they had to be able to really listen and understand the community. Um, They also have a really large number of families that are Hispanic speaking. And so they do like dual language parent tech nights and they have the parents come in and they have translators and they make sure that the parents get comfortable with it. And so, you know, that's one example and maybe pieces of that would translate into a different place, but then, You know, I spoke to a district technology leader north of Fairbanks, Alaska, and none of those ideas are going to work in his community. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, he's like, I have 12, I think he said 12 village schools, most of which are subsistence communities. And so one of the big pushes that they've done is partnering with the healthcare facility and making sure that the school and the healthcare facility have broadband. And then opening up Wi-Fi access inside those facilities. Wow. So I think there's, you know, it's, it's definitely a listening and a, a seeing what works for your community um, is what's really important. And then making sure that there's a lot of community buy-in. And so I think that's not as concrete as, you know, I can't say it's X number of whatever bits because I honestly don't know the number off the top of my head. Um, But I think those pieces are really important.
0: Well, the the community buy-in piece, I think some of that comes comes back to that listening, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the concerns of the community members? uh, You know, not only parents of students, but the you mentioned Beaverton, Oregon, with the businesses. You know, what are their concerns around Mm -hmm. having a gaggle of teenagers huddled around (laughs) huddled around their, their their place of place of business uh you know because that that's that's a real concern and i know even where i live in a, i live in a fairly rural community seven thousand people in town and uh we have you know some of those same issues of when you get home there isn't internet access other than through through a phone uh, and so we, we've had some of those like what do we what do you do with the kids that are hanging around for two hours around town to to ping off of various open wi-fi networks and then right. you know the conversation around oh, okay there's an open wi-fi network that our students are now pinging their school-owned devices off of and uh, that sort of thing uh, so there's a lot right. of, yeah there's a lot of community conversation that to, to happen i think
1: yeah um you know one of the things that's exciting at a federal level is there has been a bipartisan bill that's been put through at the senate and then a companion bill at the house that would allow E-rate funding to pay for Wi-Fi hotspots on school buses. Because again, in a lot of the more rural communities, you might be on a bus for an hour or two hours a day, that bus can now essentially become like a mobile study hall. Yeah. And so E-rate funding can cover that. And again, for some communities, I mean, that's an amazing opportunity. And the whole idea of it really spank, came out of New Mexico um, and some work that Senator Udall and FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel did where they were talking to some students at a round table and the students were also athletes. And they're like, you don't understand, we're on the bus, we go two hours each way to go play you know, football or baseball or basketball or whatever it is, and then we come back and we sit in the parking lot at school so that we can get our homework done. And that's when it's like, wait a minute, we have all this time on buses, why can't that be more productive?
0: Right. Right. Yeah, you yeah, know, and that—that's something that I know is uh, what was done in Alberta when I seven six or seven years ago when I was doing some work in Alberta. That was one of the mm-hmm. things that uh, a lot of communities were starting to starting to talk about and starting to do is putting putting Wi-Fi on on buses. And,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think it's catching catching on, if you will, now in yeah, the United States yeah. a bit. So that's um, great.
1: Now, yeah, okay. and then. Yeah, I mean, California's done a great job with it. I met a woman um, from Alabama who said that one of the things they started doing too was they would pay the teachers a stipend if they rode the bus and then they were on the bus as tutors. Oh, wow. So now you had tutors that were, you know, providing support on the bus and then they had some folks that were staying back at school and were playing the role of virtual tutor because a lot of the kids needed the additional support. It wasn't just having the access. They really needed to be able to connect to the people. So they have some people on the bus and they had other kids that were virtually connecting back to teachers at school. Wow. And you know, again, that social learning piece is really important. And so how is it being facilitated on the bus?
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we're gonna make the most awkward transition in the history of podcasting. Sweet. We may, I introduced you also as stand-up paddleboard extraordinaire (laughs) uh you just won a stand-up paddleboard race i didn't know until a couple weeks ago that stand-up paddleboard racing was even a thing but you won one it's a
1: thing i won one
0: yeah it's a thing
1: i was i was was just as surprised to win it as you are to hear about it (laughs) well the
0: i I guess it makes sense i mean any activity can become competitive. Axe throwing is like on TV now. So yeah, anything can be competitive. So talk about stand up paddleboard racing. Like how far? So what does it entail?
1: I'm okay. So I just got into this about a year ago. I'd had, I'd had a board for a long time. My husband and I have them. It's a, you know, we're in Newport, Rhode Island. We can walk to water and so for us, it was just like this really fast way to get on the water. And we had these two great big, like 12 and a half foot giant surfboards. Um, both of them, by the way, are full of claw marks because we've taken the dogs as well, which I do not race with. And I'm, mine are not very good at uh, sup pups. They, uh, <laughs> they would rather swim than stay on the board. Um, so, you know, it was something that we did for fun. And then last year I started, joined this paddle, it was called a paddle fit summer boot camp. And it was like paddle boarding and fitness class on the beach, uh, Monday and Wednesday mornings at 6 AM. And that got me like way more into it. And the instructor was, um, a woman I knew from the gym who I take her spin classes when it's too cold to paddle. Uh, and so she started teaching us like proper strokes and how to turn and Then she started saying like, Hey, I'm doing this race and you should come with me. And so last year taking my big ginormous surfboard, I followed her to three different races. The first one was absolutely terrifying. It was off the beach and I signed up for it. And then I said to myself, wait a minute, this is at the beach. There's waves. It's like, I'm on YouTube the day before, like how do you get past a wave on a paddleboard? Um, I, I, I was not very successful. I found out that the board goes backwards really fast down a wave. Um, that's, that's not what you're supposed to do. But I, you know, I finished and I got all the way around the course. And it was a three-mile race. And three miles seems kind of standard for like the whole four races I've done in my life. Uh, and then I did a second three-mile race later that summer that was here local in Newport. And then I went and did this five-mile race um, out on the Cape which was really cool was in a bay and you went around an Island. Um, And at that point in time, I honestly didn't even know if I could physically go five miles. So I trained all summer just to be able to physically like survive. Um, And, but I found out it's like this whole thing and there's, there's a website called paddle guru. There's races all over the country all the time. And then the serious people are amazing. I don't even know how they do half of what they do. And then, you can get racing boards that are made out of carbon fiber and they're super light. And there's all kinds of fanciness to them. I know absolutely nothing about it. I'm on a, our instructor, Kyle, I'm on her used board for the summer. That was, so that's my new board. Um, I found out that I, I, for a while I wasn't very cool with one of the racing crowds in town because I didn't have a proper racing paddle. I'm like, okay, but I'm still keeping up. Um, I know there's, it's like all sports, people get way into their equipment. Um, So I'm on a sweet set of hand-me-downs right now. I'm pretty happy about it, but yeah, there's three mile races. Um, I did the one I won was a six mile race. Um, I didn't know if I could do six miles. I can, turns out. Uh, And it was a fundraiser for a group called Clean Water Access. And then, but then they get crazy. So like my friend Kyle is doing this 30-mile race on some river in Tennessee in October. Um, so it can go far.
0: Yeah, 30 that's a long that's, paddle.
1: That's, that's a really, really long paddle. Um the most I've done, I did 10.7 when I sent you that picture a couple weeks ago. We Kyle wanted to do 20 miles. I was pretty sure I wouldn't live that long and be able to make it. So I was really excited when the other woman with us said after five miles that she was only good for ten and I thought, Oh, thank goodness, because I'm not gonna make it twenty. And we turned around. Um so yeah, but it's been fun and it's good exercise and I've met some really nice people and
0: Well, and I like yeah. I like the part of your story of like I didn't know if I could go five miles. Yep. I didn't know if I could go six miles, but we're I'm, gonna find out. We're gonna find out. Yep. Just, you did it and you I, find out, yeah, you can. And I think Yeah. That's true for a lot of things. Like you don't know until you try it.
1: Right. And you know, I've, I've fallen in a lot. So, you know, when you, when you fall in, you get wet and then you get over it. I think that's, that's something I like as well. As you know, I have this problem of like falling and breaking bones. And so I now try to do things that don't involve falling to break a bone. Um, You can fall on the water. It's okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Water Uh, water is, unless you're going really fast, I guess you're probably not going to get hurt falling into the water, right?
1: No, I don't think so. I'm not going that fast. Um, yeah. And I'd actually started on the board when I was still recovering from my broken leg. Like I got stir crazy and I would crutch into the water and my husband would sit me on my board and hand me a kayak paddle. And I would just sort of go tooling around because I was stir crazy and the water was kind of like an ice pack. You know, it felt really good. Um, oh, yeah. and then it took a few years, I think it was two year two summers after I was off crutches before I could even stand. So it's been this whole, it's been a good sort of like physical therapy thing too.
0: Yeah. Um, well, interestingly enough, a woman emailed me yesterday and asked if I had any advice for people trying to get active again after having a big injury or surgery and, knock on wood in my life, I've never had anything more than a broken finger and back spasms to speak of. Now that's some bad back spasms where I couldn't Great. get out of bed, but nothing like serious like you did. You broke your leg. Yep. You were on crutches for like a, a long year.
1: Run. Yeah. No, I was on for a year. I had three I had a post op infection. I had three surgeries. I was on crutches for a year. Um you know that if you're if you respond to her, I think one of the things that made a really big difference for me. I had never been someone that did a fitness class before, but I needed like peer pressure because it's really easy to say, oh, it hurts today. And so I started spinning like bike spin classes when I was still on crutches. And I, one of the instructors was so nice. And I would go to – I called it old lady spin class. I shouldn't do that because they're not – they're not that old, but who else goes to spend class at nine o'clock in the morning, right? Like everybody else is working. Um, so, you know, it's pretty low key and I would someone would help me physically get onto the bike and then all I wanted to do was get my feet to go round and round for an hour. Like that was all I did. I didn't put any resistance on it. I couldn't do any of the things they were saying to do. I'm like, but I'm going to sit here for an hour and then people get used to seeing you and when you don't show up, they say, well, where have you been? Um, yeah. so now I still, you know, I still actually schedule as much as I can around trying to get to my nine fifteen 15 spin class. Um, because people expect you to be there and you get a little community out of it. And then, you know, there's some motivation.
0: Yeah. There's a lot to be said for that. A lot to be said for that community or peer, not, I don't want to call it peer pressure because it's not pressure, but it's,
1: right, but it's, it's
0: peer Accountability. Expectation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know that's what that's what Peloton kind of. Yeah. Plugged into. Uh, Jess just got a Peloton bike like uh, about ten weeks ago. I have not touched it yet. That's her thing. That's like I bike on on my trainer bikes and whatnot. Um, but uh, she she loves it because she has a group of friends that are also doing it and they. Mm-hmm you know, do a little competition with it. And, you know, Strava, the Strava app, which I I refer to as the passive aggressive social network for runners (laughs) and bikers. Uh, (laughs) And all those things are really, can be really helpful just setting that goal of, uh, Oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show up for this or, you know, or you sign up for something that you need to get money for (laughs) and that you know that you know doing I think that's I had never done a fundraiser until this year myself actually
1: oh when you did that bike ride
0: I did that bike ride that you were so gracious to be the first donor to Uh, you
1: needed a donor yeah
0: you were and you were the first uh yeah like I'd never never done a 200 mile bike ride in a day i had done a lot of 100 to 120 mile bike rides but I was like oh let's do it see what happens. And then once people sign up, once there's like, you know, $400 donated, I'm like, Oh, I guess I really have to do it.
1: Great. <laughs> yeah. Like I can't back out now. Yeah. Um, so,
0: and right. And it, as it turns out, like three days before that, I had like the first minor kidney stone of my life. I'm like, Oh, oh this is good oh. timing. <laughs> yeah. But, oh. uh, but there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot to be said for just getting out and, so how so after your spin class, how long was it before you were really like out and being able to do stuff again? Like you know, really do stuff.
1: <laughs> so I broke my leg in 2013 and last summer, so that's two thousand eighteen, I think was my first full summer where I felt like I was physically back. And I still have a couple of things where, you know, like I don't quite have a full range of motion and My left leg's still a little bit wobblier than my right leg is. Um, But I I think my level of expectation is higher. For, like, a normal human being that doesn't exercise that much, I'm doing great. I mean, for me, I notice little things. Um, But last summer was the first year that we were, like, really hiking and doing real stuff. And so it was five, yeah, five years of a lot of rehab.
0: Wow. That is Um, a long rehab. Yeah, that's a good point about expectation too, right? Like right. Well, it well,
1: won't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, big day was the day that I was able to like walk downstairs without holding onto the railing, wow. and that took almost two years. Wow. And then back when I was still working for EdTech Teacher, I was with Greg Kulowick, and we were running to catch the T. Okay, running's an ex- a euphemism. I wasn't running. I was moving as quickly as possible to catch the T. And I actually got down the stairs at Harvard square relatively quickly and we jumped on the tee and Greg looked at me and I looked at him. We we're like, Holy cow. I didn't fall. Wow. Like it was a miracle day. I went, Oh my <laughs> God. I went all the way down the stairs. <laughs> and, and that was a good like two to three years after it I'd gotten off crutches. Um, so yeah, it was a long, it was a really long haul. Infections are nasty things. Um, yeah.
0: And, and for people who are not familiar with the stairs you're talking about, people Dang. fall down those stairs like, that haven't had.
1: Right. Like they're and, steep.
0: Like, injuries. <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> it's a lot of stairs. Um, so yeah, it was there, you know, there were a lot of like small victories and like, little. you know, it's funny the little things you start celebrating. Oh, that I carried the 50 pound bag of dog food up the stairs and actually stepped up each step. At one point, and I was like, "Holy mackerel! I am I'm jacked! <laughs> like yeah. I can carry the dog food in the house now."
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: So, yeah, little the, things. The
0: dog, dog food is a is a good milestone too, like for any carrying of anything, right?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great incentive. I it was also a great incentive to lose weight because I even as much as I tried, I put almost thirty pounds on when I spent my year on crutches because. I didn't move. Right. Um, and so, and it's, I think, and it's this summer that I think I finally back to where I was when I started. So it took forever. Like They're not kidding when they say that last 10 pounds and like when you're over 40 is not pleasant. Um, oh, but,
0: I know it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But man, you carry that like big thing of dog food or like I'll be carrying groceries into the house and go, huh, I had that much extra weight on this leg. Like that can't happen again. You know, it's got to come off. um So yeah, little. No,
0: that, that's a good point about managing expectations and your what your own milestones are. Like for you, it was walking down the stairs without holding on and carrying the dog food. And great. Right. I think for other people, you know, it might be like you know going, you know, being able to take the stairs instead of the elevator to get mm-hmm. up to the third floor or whatever. You know, I think it's all expectations. Like that's one of the things I've. I've had to recalibrate a little bit as I've gotten a little older. Uh, like I'm old enough to race in master's category now. Right. in mm-hmm. uh, and, and biking, which on paper seems like, Oh, that'll be easier. Wrong. Wrong. What turns out is that's where all the retired, retired in air quotes, great uh, professional level riders, um, you know, that's where they, that's where they go. So, um, yeah, that's a interesting one, but yeah. Did I lose you?
1: You know, no, I'm still here.
0: Okay. Sorry.
1: Um, no, that's okay. Yeah. I think, you know, I'll, I'll give you one last one. That's been super cool. Um, so in this class that I, this paddling class I've been taking, we have this one woman and She showed up for the first one last summer and introduces herself and says she's never paddled before. And then says, Oh, and I don't know how to swim. Oh, and right. Yeah. Oh, like we're paddling in the water. And so, you know, she puts a whole life jacket on and this woman is amazing. And I think about how far she has come in the last two years and you know, some of us have given her some, you know, swim lessons and she's learned, you know, she doesn't quite panic anymore if she falls off and she knows how to get back on the board. And she did the three mile race a couple weeks ago when I did the sixth mile and, you know, she wears a life jacket, which is smart, um, like a full life jacket. Like I have a little like waistband one. Um, right. but man, she's like, she's gotten so much more confident and it is just awesome to see her out there. Um. So yeah, that whole like expectations and conquering fears and not letting them hold you back. And she's like, yeah, I'm terrified of the water. So I decided to do this class.
0: That Hey, Hey. what's what's that old adage of, uh, learn to swim by jumping in the water or something or being thrown off the boat. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's literally doing that. That's great.
1: Literally. Yeah. I mean, I had the advantage of like being a baby. Apparently my mom just like chucked me in a pool and I kind of came back to the surface. So I didn't, (laughs) <laughs> Water's been fine.
0: Yeah, see, my mother tried to do that with me, and it's turned me into someone who only swims if the boat is sinking. Uh, oh, oh well. You know, but you know, it worked for the, it worked for my three other siblings. So you know, three out of four isn't bad, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, they they learned from my experience. But uh, for another time, I'll tell tell you the story of when I got kicked out of phys ed class during the swimming section in high school oops but that's a different story for for another time another time another time but uh so this has been great and i want people to know where they can find out more about digital equity in your work and or stand-up paddleboarding
1: um okay so my work we've got lots of resources on the cosin website and that's org. And then personally, I am Br Holland everywhere. I'm Br Holland on Twitter. My website is brholland.com. Um, you know, I'm I'm very I'm highly responsive, so please feel free to reach out by, you know, Twitter or LinkedIn or email or anything else. Um and the whole paddleboarding thing, I'm still learning the landscape. But if you want to do a race, you go to paddle guru, I think it's dot com. And you just type in your location and it shows you all the fun things that are going on around you. And you know, it's cool too. There's a ton of fundraisers and like clean water type events. And so yeah, go try a paddleboard race. They're pretty funky. Cool.
0: Sounds sounds like fun, and maybe I'll maybe that'll be my thing next summer. It's getting a little bit late in the year here in Maine for.
1: Oh yeah, you should come down and visit me because my water's warmer.
0: Yeah, well, the water in in Maine gets to like sixty at the peak of the summer, so you know. Yeah,
1: I've been swimming in Maine. I would rather go swimming down here.
0: Oh, for sure, for sure, yeah. So. Well thanks so much, Beth, and thanks I hope you learn something about digital equity and/ or stand up paddleboarding today. And if Perfect. you have uh, any questions, just find Beth on all of those social media platforms that she mentioned and her website brholland.com. Thank you.:
1: Thanks, Richard.